0: All right, let's pray. Our Father God, we approach you with your word open, the sacredness of your speech to us, the description of who you are and what you've done, what you're doing, what you will do. All these things, Lord, we hope to feast on, to grow in our hope and our joy, our holiness our uh, dependence upon you. And so, Lord, I would pray now that you would come speak to us and teach us of who you are and who we're depending on, relying on, who it is that we direct our faith to, our prayers to, um, Lord, who you desire for us to know you as by simply defining who you are. And so we are glad to be arrived together at this moment. We're thankful that you would so keep and preserve these things to speak to us today. Uh, We pray that you would unveil anything that is veiled before us, that you would enlighten any darkened eyes or hearts or minds, and that you would cause your presence of peace to reign in our hearts in all circumstances. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We move now to the end of this letter, Second Thessalonians, and to the letters to the Thessalonians. We look here at the benediction. It, we've already looked at a, a preemptive benediction that Paul gave to them earlier, uh, but now we look to this final benediction that The benedictions of Paul, the benedictions of Peter are really important things to look at in Scripture. They tell us a lot about what these guys, these apostles, um, view as the most pure, essential things that they want for the church, that they want for the people that they're writing to. They kind of boil everything down, and if you're going to say goodbye for Possibly the final time, as Paul is maybe doing here with the Thessalonians, he's he's going to make sure and leave them with the correct words. You know, you don't just want to say, bye, see you later. But he's bidding them um, goodbye with, with a pronouncement, with a prayer of blessing. And it's always in these benedictions a reminder. As well as the greetings, their letters are bookended with, A reminder of who God is and how he reigns over us and what he does in our lives. And then he reminds again before he signs off who God is, what he does, how we relate to him, how we know him, all that sort of thing. So it's really important that we pay attention to these benedictions. And especially this one. Because he gives the Lord a title or recognizes a title in and of himself, that means a lot for us. For all of us who deal in this world, in this time, in this place, in this climate, with certain anxieties, and you can see in this world, and especially in this time, in this climate, a desire from the evil one to create unrest and a lack of peace. All those things are utilized by him, for the express purposes of us not looking at the one who provides those things, the clarity, the peace, the unity, especially in the midst of chaos and turbulence and darkness. And so we look now, starting in verse 16, of this Lord of Peace. Paul says, as he begins to sign off, "...now may the Lord of Peace himself..." Give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. If we want to summarize these letters to begin here, we have to recognize the current state of the Thessalonian church and the unrest that surrounds them. They've been persecuted from the beginning of their existence. Now, think about that. Think about planting a church somewhere where you are persecuted from day one for existing as the church. That's them. Not only that, but some of that persecution has led to some um, heretical um, ideas. People trying to whisper or speak lies into their midst to cause unrest, to disturb their peace as God's people, as they exist under the Lord of peace. So they have had this unrest that has surrounded them, at all times, some commentators will discuss Paul's discussion of peace here as something that's not actually associated with the church, but it's outside the church that's plaguing them. And I would disagree. I don't know who I am to disagree with these commentators, but I'm going to, because I think from what he has discussed in these past two letters about how to bear with the brothers, how to have patience with them, how to how to restore and keep unity and peace by good doctrine, it would seem that they are disturbed or have uh, something coming against their peace from both outside and within the church. So to remind them that the Lord is the Lord of peace is kind of a big deal as he ends his letters to them. Because it's something they are easily distracted from. Something they easily... Forget about him. Now two things have been concerning them the whole time. Number one, unrest about the end times. There's some misunderstanding and some confusion about how, how all this gets wrapped up, how Jesus uh, presents himself in victory and rescues his church and redeems his church for all eternity. There's some confusion there. And number two, There's persecution, of course. There are specific Jews in their midst, in their town, who will stop at nothing uh, to cause them trouble. I mean, after all, they are the ones that drove Paul out of town in the first place. So confusion about the end times and persecution from people outside of themselves. And in, inside themselves, they have idleness because of the misunderstanding about the end times. The thinking that they missed it, that Jesus drove by and, and invited people on the bus and they, they missed it. That's not how this works, right? We've, we've been over that. We've discussed that. We know what this is. But I want to focus in here on, on Jesus as Lord of Peace and what that is, and how that is, and all the goodness wrapped up in the fact that Jesus is the Lord of peace. How we see these things about him from the very beginning. How the Old Testament describes him as that Prince of Peace. How in the New Testament you have over ten times God called the God of Peace. How you have on almost every benediction of Paul and Peter, a discussion about how he is the Lord of peace, how he ushers in peace, how he grants peace. And if there's something that you and I are always going to be troubled by that is that is likened to the, the church at Thessalonica, it is, it is going to be the temptation to not look to the Lord of peace, to have peace in every and all circumstances. Something that is transcendent about our existence than the rest of the world is that we would... Have peace in the midst of all sorts of circumstances. Which would proclaim to the people that are watching that we have hope in something outside of ourselves. And something that is um, above and beyond all circumstances that we face in this world. If there's anything that everyone in this world is sure to encounter, it is moments where peace is absent. And the whole goal here today in focusing in on Jesus as the Lord of peace is to remind you that even when you assume or think that peace is absent, it is because your eyes have been taken off of the one who is the Lord of peace. If he reigns in peace, if he is peace, if he brings peace, if he has brought peace once for all, if we define what peace is, then you will know that even though I don't feel it, even though I don't uh, seem to see it, it is existing because Jesus is existing over all things now. So we have peace. You can look at Isaiah 9, 6 to find that the promise of Jesus, the one to be born of this virgin, is that he is this Prince of Peace. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. I don't know a lot of uh, presidents, dictators, kings that exist in the world today where they are defined by how they bring peace. I, I would think that the only one throughout history who could carry this title to its fullest definition would be Jesus himself. And we want to look at exactly how he has brought peace. And how we know that we have peace. And what it is exactly we need peace about. Amen. So we look at John 14 here. because Jesus is going to describe for us what he's giving us. And I start in verse 26 of John 14 because... I want us to place this in the proper context. Jesus is beginning to reach the cross here at this latter part of John's Gospel. And he's given these instructions and these descriptions to his apostles and disciples as he leaves so that they are reminded by the Holy Spirit of these things that he said and what it will do for them to remember these things. So, in verse 26, But the Helper... The Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. So, one of the comforts that we have from the Prince of Peace that has been prophesied about in the Old Testament and that as he comes and as he wins this for us and as he does this, we understand that he's giving peace. Now I included verse 26 because of what he says before he talks about the peace he's leaving with us. He says the Holy Spirit is coming and he's going to teach you and he's going to bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Then he tells us, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Through his word, we understand what peace is and we understand how he's brought it. It is a kind of peace that the world can't give you. It is only a peace that came with Jesus and only a peace that he can leave with us. Therefore, in light of what he gives and what he brings and who he is and how the Holy Spirit's going to do that with his word, his promises, his declarations, his commands. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. Because Jesus gives peace. And if Jesus is Lord, then he's Lord of peace. And if God is sovereign, meaning he has authority and rule over all things at all times, then if he reigns in peace as the God of peace then peace we can have, and we cannot be troubled, and we don't have to be afraid. And we're going to look in a little bit exactly what that means, but essentially it means that we don't have to be afraid of anything. It is tempting for us to be afraid and to not have peace, because we don't know God's plans at all times, but we have to know that His plans are good at all times, for goodwill. That the circumstances themselves and our human understanding and our, and our temporary understanding, our existence in time and space, don't allow us to understand or see the full picture of God's goodness and all that he does through all circumstances. But our faith in Jesus, who brings peace, promises peace, and, and bestows upon us that peace at all times, allows us to transcend those circumstances that we don't understand, that we can't see the end of, and have peace. Because it depends on Him. And that's why one of the biggest doctrines that I hope to teach you um, is the sovereignty of God. If He's not sovereign, that He cannot work all things together for good. But if he is, then everything falls under his uh, uh, command to do good. Everything. And if that's true, then we have peace. Hearts don't have to be troubled. Fear doesn't have to define us. Because faith is in someone who reigns supreme over all those things. And he reigns in peace. Ephesians 2 tells us this, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself. Underline that. In himself. One new man in place of two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off, and peace to those who were near. What's that tell us? That at the cross, Jesus killed the greatest problem that that disturbed and stole peace from the world hostility with God as his enemies if you, if you back up in Ephesians 2 I think to verse 2 or 3 or maybe I'm wrong but it talks about us maybe verse 4 talks about us being children of wrath well if you're children of wrath and your enemy is God then is there any peace for you? no there is a there is an existence a disturbed existence at all times Because you are existing under the heavy hand of God who has all power and all might and exercises his will above and through all things. You are doomed. There's no peace. But if Jesus remedies that, if he reconciles that, if he transforms us from children of wrath to children of God, then then the hostility's gone. It says in verse 16 that he killed the hostility. So then he preaches peace with God. That's peace. If you don't have peace with God, then you have an artificial peace. You know, sometimes, as I used to think, like, and not that it's bad, But like getting away in vacations and solitude, like that's peace, right? And it it, it aids that. I'm not saying it does. But true peace is him. Verse 14, for he himself is our peace. That's where it is. That's where the focus should be when we seek peace. The gospel meditation that we should be meditating on day and night is the fact that Jesus has made us children of peace, which he is Lord of. We don't have to fear God in the sense that he's going to destroy our body uh, and soul in hell, but we we get to enjoy God. There is no greater peace than the peace that comes over your soul. The peace that is eternally supreme to any peace that you can manufacture here on this earth. Can you not watch the world and see them seeking peace? Except in the wrong things. They're seeking to find peace and, and, and consolation for their troubled souls in many things. But Jesus says, I, I give you what the world doesn't give you. I give you peace. I'm Lord of peace. I'm Prince of peace. And the peace you need is peace with God. If you have peace with God, is there, any, is there anything to be afraid of anymore? Is there anything to be troubled by anymore? The, re- the rhetorical answer is no. No. And constant, day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year of meditation on how that is in Jesus brings constant peace. You know what the word peace actually means? It, it, it means this freedom from quarrels, especially in the absence of war. Now, like I described earlier, if we're children of wrath, um, then there's going to be a war with God. And he's going to win. He's God. But if there is no war anymore with the one who will defeat you, but if you're on his side, You don't have to fear evil winning. You don't have to fear God winning. You, you get to enjoy His victory. So, how does His being, the God of peace, affect you? Does it affect you? Well, it, if it affects you, you understand the gospel. You understand peace is yours through Jesus. And then, you also know some of these things. Philippians 4, 6 through 7. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. As a result, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, or which is greater than, then all knowledge will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. If you know that God is not your enemy, but he is your father through Jesus, then you know that he cares about you as his child, and anything that's causing you great anxiety, great angst, or unrest, can be given to him or spoken to him through prayer, with thanksgiving, knowing that he knows and will take care of it for the good of his children. And if that's the case, if that's the faith you have in your mind and your heart because he's told us to do it and he's told us he'll take care of us, then what? The peace of God which surpasses greater than all knowledge will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. You can have great and grave problems, but if you're a child of God, you can know that ultimately... This will work out not only for his glory, but for your good. Not only that, that even in your discipline, which may cause you great anxiety and unrest, it will work for good and bring you more peace, bring you more joy. It's what he wants for his people. You guys know this great pronouncement of blessing that Moses tells Aaron and his sons to give to the people of Israel. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And this is something that Paul wants for the Thessalonians as well. And we know it because he's asking for it. And he's writing to them these two letters so that their trust in the Lord and their understanding of His care for them and especially the understanding of how He is going to come again and get them from where they are and take them to where He is is meant to provide them peace in the midst of their unrest. And when you think about it, when you zoom out, all of these scriptures are meant to bring God's people what? Peace. John even tells us that he writes that we would have this confidence and this assurance of the things that Jesus has said and done and promised. Therefore, you can look at the Bible as God wanting his children to know who he is, what he's done, and what he will do. And if all those things are true, and if you know them to be true, then you will have, what, peace as a result. If you don't, then you won't have peace. You'll be continually disturbed by the fact that you know in your heart the only there is no remedy for you. There is no promise or surety of those things working out for good. These may just be bad things for you, whatever's causing you unrest and disturbing your peace. Even David knows that, look, I, I lie down in peace because you make me lie down in peace, he says in the Psalms. You make me lie down in peace. You can even go to Psalm 23. What is, what is that describing? Lord's my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. Do you see any other greater <laughs> description of peace? about when you fast forward to revelation, and you see that before the throne of God is this sea of glass. What is that describing? An undisturbed, unfettered calmness that exists around the throne of God. For some of you, that's all you want today is just a little bit of peace. And all the parents in the room said, "Amen. But you find it in Christ. And you have the promise of that being your actual everyday experience in heaven. And you have the the opportunity for that to be your actual everyday position of your heart in Christ constantly. But you have to look to him. Because he's the Lord of peace. And if you look somewhere else, as some of you have the experience of doing, it's not there. Gosh, we could spend a lot of time going through the testimonies of men and women who have sought peace in so many things and come up empty or come up wanting more and more because it can't satisfy the longings of their soul for peace. But in Jesus, and only in Jesus, can it. Because only through Jesus are we reconciled to God to be transformed into His children To receive his inheritance, which is eternal peace with him. That's why all these guys are writing to us. That's why. They want us to know. We'll move to verse 17. There's much meditation to be given there. I hope you would continue that. But Verse 17, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand... This is the sign of genuineness. In every letter of mine, it is the way I write. Paul is assuring them again for their peace, again for their assurance, again for their confidence that, look, I am the one writing to you. With my own hand, I'm signing this letter. I'm writing these words. I'm putting my personality in them so that you know if I've written to you once... And I've, if I've written to you a second time, you know this is how I write. It's his distinguishing mark. It's it's really important too in, in uh, verifying the validity of of these letters. Is there's a there's a hint of personality in the way that Paul writes. There's things that he says. There's phrases he uses. There's there's just ways in which he discusses the things of God that are unique to who Paul is. And I've talked about it before but I'll give you a hint again one one of the the distinguishing marks of Paul's writing is his gospel rabbit trails. And they're not rabbit trails so to speak. They're fleshing out the gospel when he even mention he's when he's discussing a certain problem or a certain issue or a certain topic And then he begins to mention the Lord Jesus Christ or or his salvation of us. And then he'll take off into this rabbit trail of what the gospel is. And he'll blow our minds. Kind of like in Philippians 2. And he's kind of entreating them to to get along and look at other people's needs before themselves. And then he goes off into into this look at the humility of Christ who became a man. Who humbled himself by becoming obedient to the will of God. Obedient even to the point of death. I mean, he he just does this all the time. And so they, they should know, they should take comfort in the fact that this is not one of the false letters from one of those false super apostles that existed in the first century, but this is from Paul himself. And if it's from Paul himself, we know he's an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, and therefore what he's writing to us is not just from him, it is from the Lord Jesus Christ who has given Paul a new heart, who has done these things in him to give to us. And he assures them of that as well for their comfort and for their peace. And then he bids them adieu in verse 18. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. The unmerited favor and kindness of of the anointed and promised Savior be with you. It's a powerful statement. Whenever you see Paul use all three descriptors and titles, Lord Jesus Christ, he is enforcing or, or pushing forward the full thrust of who Jesus is. He is is helping you to recognize the majesty and the the miraculous nature of his salvation in being God who promised to save his people. He's putting that above us and he's saying his unmerited favor and kindness be with you all. You know, it would be a silly and a small thing to say that the unmerited favor of so-and-so be with you. But, but if it's the unmerited favor and kindness of the sovereign one of the universe who is the Lord of peace that he established in verse 16, if that's who he's talking about, wow, what a what a pronouncement or, or an ask of blessing for us. The eternal grace, the, the unending grace, that's what he wants for the people. Notice how he ends his Letter to the Romans. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Now, if Jesus is the snake crusher of Genesis 3.15, if he has taken the the keys of death, if he has proclaimed victory over such things by his death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave, then Satan and all those enemies will be put under his feet. They'll be crushed, as was promised all the way back in Genesis 3.15. And to have his grace upon us or with us means that that becomes under our feet as well so that all the evil, all the things that ail us and and rob us of peace here in this life get placed beneath you in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. He just elevated you from a place of constant despair, and rightly so, to a, a place where He is, reigning supreme over these things, having eternal peace with the Father, dwelling at His right hand, speaking to Him whenever He pleases, about with whatever he needs to speak to him about, enjoying constant eternal fellowship in his glory, that becomes yours. He crushes your enemies under your feet if his grace is with you. And if his grace is on you, that means his wrath is removed from you. There's nothing more terrifying, I always tell people, in all the universe, than the wrath of God. Well, if that's removed from you, and if His grace, His favor is upon you, there's nothing greater. So if you have the greatest thing you could have in all of the universe and in all of the heavens, don't you have peace? Don't you have joy? Don't you have gladness? We were just talking in Sunday school. How do we know That This gospel, this grace of Jesus has entered somebody's heart. How does it reflect out if they've experienced these things? Well, they'll have joy. They'll have peace. Isn't that one of the fruits of the Spirit? That abides with God's people. As Jesus said, I'm sending my helper, and he's going to remind you of all the things that I've said and all the things that I've done. I think it was Martin Luther that said... um, I think it was Martin Luther. He said, peace if at all possible, but truth at all cost. And we're even told in the scriptures that as much as you can, seek to live at peace with your fellow man. But the greatest truth in all of the universe is that God has sought to display mercy and grace by reconciling sinners to himself by the cross of his Son, pleased to crush Him on our behalf so that we might be reconciled to Him, which would mean that we would have peace with Him. And we live for that. We live in the fear of God, which means we have a reverence for Him and are utterly amazed every day of our life that He has sought peace with us and has secured that through Jesus. Jesus and while we would love to live peaceably with our fellow man, they can't give us what Jesus can give us. And they aren't Lord. They aren't Lord of peace. So, peace if at all possible, but truth at all cost. The greatest truth, that Jesus has secured peace with the Father. And that can be yours, and live eternally in your heart, despite circumstances here until you live only in the circumstance of peace forever. If you would repent and believe that He has done it. And so I pray you'd meditate on those things. I pray again, if you are His, that you would be renewed in the peace of our Lord Jesus. And if you aren't His, that you would seek peace today that He offers it to you and then we'll stand and sing together.